Today I'm going to do something I have never done in 24 years of preaching. I'm going to preach the same sermon to the same congregation. My very first Sunday as your pastor, I asked all of you to please come back to the following Sunday evening service to hear a particular sermon from a particular passage of Scripture. It was intended to set the tone and set in stone what would be a cornerstone of Calvary going forward in our time together. And it was a call, if you recall, to always pray and not give up. Now, in my last Sunday in Calvary's pulpit, the Lord led me to share this sermon again. I spoke to the elders about the an orthodox step of repeating a sermon. Why would God have me share this sermon again? Well, about half of you, praise God, were not here five years ago. The Lord has blessed the church, and so we have new faces who were not with us. And there were some of you who probably couldn't make that evening service, and so you didn't hear this message. And then there are some of you today who were here, and you heard that message. But friends, it bears repeating. It bears repeating. Because God has done an incredible work here at Calvary Church. Amen? It's been a fun time to see Him at work. It has been a blessing to witness all that God has been doing. But all of it has been by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have noted many times that we can draw a straight line from, from what we have asked God for fervently, frequently, corporately in prayer and how God has moved mountains in our midst to make those things happen. From giving us a wonderful team of, of godly, qualified, biblical elders. Do you remember when I said we need to pray that we'd have six biblically qualified elders? And you'd have thought I said we need to grow a horn on our head. Because it had been a while since we had a whole crop of new elders come up. But God did that. And He's been adding to that. And men have cycled in and they've gotten a rest. And new men have cycled in behind them. And other men have come back. And it's been wonderful. Uh, to seeing thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, I think if we totaled it up, come to improve the facilities and bring us to the part we are today. Uh, I remember praying that we would have children in our nursery. And we went from having cobwebs in the nursery to having so many that we had to split them up and figure it out. Um, we prayed that God would send godly spouses to the sons and daughters of Calvary. And I can look around and see some of you have paired off and Mission accomplished. Well done. We prayed that they would have jobs in the area and find homes they could afford and stay with us. And you know what? Look around. God has done it. God has done it. We prayed that God would raise up preachers, and He did that. We've had a bevy of folks pray. Charlie's here today. He's preaching up a storm left, right, and center, and Jason's going around quite often in our community. Uh, we prayed uh, for God to send out missionaries. Boy, that one turned out different than we thought, didn't it? <laughs> But he answered it, didn't he? Uh, we prayed and God gave us a tremendous, contagious spirit of grace that has infused this place to the point that many visitors have said what a loving church it is to be at Calvary Church. Uh, we've been in a church where not a single unkind word has been uttered in a business meeting in five years. It might be a church record. 
Uh, we, we have had every single decision made unanimously by our elder board for the entire five years I've been here. We have committees and ministries staffed with eager folks with a passion and a giftedness in that particular ministry serving as unto the Lord. It's undeniably true that God has been good to us. Amen? But these things didn't just happen. And that's why I'm preaching this sermon to you again. These things happened because we prayed and then God showed up. God graciously gave because we obediently prayed. And so with that in mind, let's rewind to that sermon several years ago. And it began like this. Did you know that in all of Scripture, there's only one thing that amazes God? And it's not the kind of things that jump into our minds about what amazes us. We hear about some ten-horned dictator and his ruthless campaign of carnage against his own people, and we're amazed. Who among us, when we first learned of the atrocities of the Nazis, did not stop dead in our tracks in sheer amazement? at the utter brutality one man can inflict upon his neighbor. And yet God, nowhere in Scripture, is amazed by depravity. Nowhere in the Bible does God ever seem surprised by man's ability when it comes to iniquity. God is often enraged by man's depravity, but He is never amazed by it. Well, what about beauty? Uh, we, we, we go on a cruise back when you could do that sort of thing. And, and we're out at sea, and you can't see another ship. You can't see a, a, a landmass. You can't see anything but the sea. And you stand there in your little balcony, and you watch the sun set over the ocean's cresting waves, and you're kind of amazed, aren't you? And you do it the next night, the next night, because it's amazing. We, uh, we go far away from, from these city lights, and we go out camping somewhere in the in the more secluded parts of our country, and we see the sea of stars and the movement of the constellations and their special configuration, and we're amazed. But what does God say about these things? God saw the heavens and the earth. He saw it when it was all brand new and shiny, before sin had ever entered in, and it was as good as it was ever going to get, this side of recreation. And you know what God said? He said, it's good. He wasn't amazed. He made it. So God is not amazed by beauty. God is not amazed by power. We see raw power and we are in awe of it. I don't know if you've ever flicked on the news or better yet, you've been in a situation of devastation and you have seen an earthquake or a tornado or a tsunami or a hurricane or whatever decimate some place. And we are amazed at the power of destruction. But to God, what are these things? A tsunami is a splash from heaven. A tornado is just a tiny breeze. And a peal of thunder is a meager pop. God is not impressed by power because He is power. He Himself is power that is uneclipsed and uneclipsable. Indeed, what we are awed at, it would appear that God merely yawns at. He is so different from you and I. Did you know that there's only one thing in all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that ever amazes God, and amazingly, it's something many people consider a character flaw. But God is amazed by it. It's found in Luke 
chapter 7. That won't be our primary text today, but in Luke chapter 7, the Bible says this, when Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, He entered Capernaum. And there a centurion servant, that would be a Roman, a pagan, a foreigner, a centurion who was a commander of a troop of a hundred, a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was a sick and about to die. And the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking Jesus to come to him and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this. This pagan, these are Jews begging on behalf of a pagan, because he loves our nation and built our synagogue. And so Jesus went with them, and he was not far from the house of the centurion when the centurion sent friends to him saying, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. And that is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come directly to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, Jesus was amazed at him, the pagan centurion. And turning to the crowd following him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. Jesus was amazed at the centurion's simple but profound faith. Now, Jesus was not only amazed in Scripture by a lot of faith in Luke 7, He was amazed by a lack of faith in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, the Bible says, Jesus left there and went to His hometown, accompanied by His disciples. And when the Sabbath came, He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard Him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What is this wisdom that's been given Him that He even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And aren't His sisters here with us? And they took offense at Him. And Jesus said to them, only in His hometown, among His relatives and in His own house, is a prophet without honor. And He could not do any miracles there except lay His hands on a few sick people and heal them. And Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Indeed, Hebrews 11.6 says this, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to Him must believe He exists, there is a God, and must believe that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. That's what prayer is all about. It's believing there is a God who hears and answers prayer, who is big enough, strong enough, willing enough, loving enough, and I'm going to be earnest enough to keep asking until He tells me to stop or answers my request. And so it is against this backdrop that I want us to go back to our text this morning. I want you to turn in the Word of the Lord to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And we will be looking at the parable of the persistent widow. The parable of the persistent widow. Now the Word of God says this in Luke chapter 18. And then Jesus told His disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to Him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. 
And for some time, the unjust judge refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord Jesus said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for His chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night? Will He keep putting them off? I tell you, He will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Now, Jesus told a lot of parables in His ministry. We can read some of the Gospels and there's long sections, parable after parable after parable after parable. And, and sometimes, in fact, many times, His disciples were a bit remiss in this. and They didn't really understand what the parable was about or why the parable was said. But that is not the case in this text. The Holy Spirit goes out of the way to let us know why we have this parable. Jesus tells us in verse 1, the Bible says, Jesus told His disciples a parable. Why? That we should always pray and not give up. And He knew a little something about the Christians that were coming. That their first instinct wouldn't be to, and their second instinct would be to stop if they did. And so He gave us a Scripture that we would always pray and not give up. And I believe this is the great weakness in the modern church today. Society is crumbling. Sin is abounding. The church is retreating. And the question is why? It's not because we lack the funds. The church has never had so much cash. Buildings are going up here and there and no expenses spared. And the problem can't be that we lack the knowledge. We have more Christian books, more Christian websites. We have more Christian theological training centers available to this generation than any other generation in the history of the church. The problem is not because we lack the manpower. There are more Christians around on planet Earth today than at any other time in the history of the world. Just raw number of total people that claim to be followers of Christ. The problem seems to be we lack the faith to pray effectively, and then we lack the discipline to pray persistently. We don't always pray, and we too easily give up. The sad fact is, few in the pew, according to the statisticians, pray every day. And those that do often do so relatively briefly and rather dispassionately. Jesus said that my house will be a house of and that's what he said. And he said it because he meant it. He said it with sweat on his brow and a whip in his hands. One of the few times Jesus got angry in Scripture. My house will be a house of prayer. And yet, if we're honest, our churches are full of songs and sermons, but they're sadly devoid of passionate, urgent, faith-filled prayers. And so I think our Lord's words in Luke 18 have never been more appropriate. And so let's pause right now and let's ask the Lord that the point of this parable would not be lost on us today, but that our Savior's statements would instead rouse us to always pray and not give up. Let's pray and then we'll delve into the text today. Lord Jesus, we invite You as Lord of this church to 
rekindle in us a heart for prayer. Lord, uh, I, I had a season here and I've seen You really raise up prayer warriors. We had two or three in a prayer meeting and now we have 20 or so, uh, a tenfold increase. We see people praying during the services. We see people praying in their small groups. We have a prayer guide that's now uh, built out with all these different subcategories of gospel opportunities and people's needs and kingdom partners. And, and people are really praying. I hear them writing and asking this missionary, that missionary, uh, our staff, what about this? What happened to so-and-so? What happened in this situation? We prayed that You'd make us righteously addicted to prayer. Uh, that as we began to see that when we pray, You answer. And You answered much more rapidly. The, the Israelites prayed for 400 years that they'd be released from slavery. And You ultimately did it without a single shot being fired by an Israeli soldier. You allowed them to plunder their oppressors. And You brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. Were it not for their disobedience and lack of faith, they'd have been there 40 years earlier. You never failed them. And yet, Lord, You have not made us wait 40 years or 400 years. Sometimes we don't wait four days. We pray in a prayer meeting, and before I'm able to come back the next Sunday, that mountain has fallen into the sea. And what wasn't possible for us is achieved by Jesus. And so You have been slowly, steadily, repeatedly cultivating a righteous addiction to prayer. And I pray, Lord, that You'd fan that into flame for the sake of Your holy name and the good of Your holy people. Please, Lord Jesus, use this sermon to leave an indelible imprint in our hearts that would lead us to be a house of prayer. Until Jesus returns, we ask this. Amen and amen. Now the Word of God says in verse 2 of our text today, in a certain town, Jesus says, there was a judge. He's our first character in our story. Who neither feared God nor cared about men. That tells us a lot about his mentality. And there was also another character. There was a widow in that town who kept coming to that unjust judge with this plea, grant me justice against my adversary. And so the peril begins with a lowly widow woman. And she has little income, but she's very vulnerable in her society. She seemingly has no influential friends to insulate her from her problems. Uh, she doesn't have a husband in that society to intervene. She doesn't seemingly have a son to step in. She doesn't seem to have anyone. She is in a very vulnerable position in the ancient world. And sure enough, someone sees this vulnerable target, swoops in, and exploits this defenseless widow. And so, she goes to the only one in her society who could possibly assist her. She goes to the local magistrate. That's the very one appointed by God and government to, to defend the widow and the orphan in Israeli society. The only individual whose sole purpose is to dispense justice and to dispel iniquity. And when she goes to court, she doesn't ask for favor. She doesn't ask for special treatment. She doesn't ask for partiality. Her cry is fair. It's simply, grant me justice against my adversary. But tragically, Jesus tells us she has gone to an unjust judge. One whom neither fears God nor cares about men. His position was not sought out of reverence for the law or love for justice nor regard for his neighbor. No, this judge, like so many modern officials, seemingly sought his office for personal prominence, prestige, and financial gain. 
Now, this widow is really a societal outcast. She's a nobody. She has no influential friends to make this case worth the judge's attention. The widow has no money to bribe the judge's eyes onto her docket. And every day, this man's court is filled with folks, and so he arrogantly assumes with his caseload being so heavy, only the great cases involving the great people and the great issues of the day Well, only those are the ones he has time for in his great courtroom. And so destitute widows would have to wait, and wait indefinitely. But Jesus tells us this widow would not be easily deterred. And so justice would not be indefinitely deferred. Look at verse 4. For some time the judge refused to listen to her case. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, (laughs) I'll see that she gets justice. And and, and so she won't eventually wear me out (laughs) with her constant coming. Jesus says that for some time, the unjust judge refused her pleas for justice. But after a while, the sheer persistence of the petitioner prodded the malevolent magistrate to listen to her pleas. It would appear that every day when the judge went to court, there was the widow crying out for justice. And when he left the court and and, and he went out to have lunch, there was the widow outside of his chamber crying out for justice. If he went to theater with his wife, there was the widow on the way to the theater crying out, grant me justice. And so even though he didn't fear God and he didn't care about men, there was one man he cared a lot about. Himself. And this widow's persistent pleas overwhelmed the unjust judge until he says, I'm going to see that she gets justice so she won't eventually wear me out by her coming. Now the Greek word wear me out is very expressive. Uh, it literally means to cause a black mark under one's eye. Mike Tyson wore people out. Caused a black mark under their eye after a fight. So the unjust judge doesn't want his reputation soiled. He was getting a black eye by the widow's cries. Even his heathen cohorts were beginning to wonder about old Judge Eagle over there who has no time for this poor defenseless widow. And so, even though the judge was selfish, the widow ultimately received justice. Even though justice was delayed, it was not ultimately denied. And so I want to just review for a minute, make sure you got it. Why did the widow receive justice according to Jesus? Was it because the judge was just? No. The opposite is true. Was it because the judge was compassionate? No. The opposite. Was it because the widow was important? No. Again, it's the opposite. We know why the widow received justice. And it was because of her persistence. She knew where to go with her problem. And she wouldn't let go until a verdict was given. Look again at verse 6. And the Lord Jesus said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for His chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night? Will He keep 
putting them off. I tell you, He will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on the earth? Jesus says, listen to what the unjust judge says, and would not God bring about justice for His chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night? Think about that. The unjust judge will give His answer. Jesus is saying, so surely Almighty God will give His answer to you as well. You see, our situation is so much better than that of the widow in this parable. Because our judge is so much better than the judge in this parable. The widow took her plea to a total stranger. We take our plea to our Heavenly Father. The widow went to the unjust judge. We go to the Lord of righteousness. The widow had no one to speak for her in court. We have the Lord Jesus Christ as our advocate before the Father. The widow had to stay at a distance of the bar of iniquitous justice. But the Bible says we can come with boldness to the throne of grace through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The widow had no promise of a hearing, but the Bible says that God listens to our prayers. The widow could only approach the justice when He could be sought. The Bible teaches that we can come to God anytime, all the time, every time, And He invites us to come and call Him Father, not just ruler, though He is. If the lowly widow with no hope of help persistently pled and robustly received, why do we, as children of the King, worry and fret? Why do we go it alone? Why do we save prayer for Sundays? and emergencies. Why do we behave like faithless fools who know no God? Look again at Jesus' words starting at verse 6. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for His chosen ones? who cry out to Him day and night. Will He keep putting them off? I tell you, He will see they get justice and quickly. Now, we read this parable and we get excited. We get encouraged. And we get on our knees. And yet, if the answer to our prayer doesn't come right away, we sort of quit praying altogether, don't we? We begin to say, well, Maybe prayer worked in the Bible, but it doesn't work today. Or at least it doesn't work for me. I prayed about something twice, and nothing happened. Prayer must not work. Is that the kind of praying the Lord Jesus is encouraging us to in our passage? It is most certainly not. Jesus says when His chosen ones cry out to Him, cry out is the Greek word boao, It means to passionately, urgently cry out for help. It is the same word Scripture uses to describe what Jesus did on the cross. He blowed, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Passionate, urgent, real, emotional prayer. If you want to see real fruit in your prayer life, maybe it's time we get a biblical prayer life. 
For many of us, we sort of learn these almost meaningless mechanical mantras. You put a coin in the slot, you pull the lever, and out comes this prayer that very smallly changes from situation to situation. And yet Jesus tells us to cry out to Boao, to the God of heaven. And so it bears a question, when is the last time you shed even one tear in your prayer time, Boaoing to the living God? Now, some of you might be saying, well, that's not very dignified. <laughs> I'm far too refined for such a spectacle. And I don't mean to offend you, but perhaps if you're too proud to humble yourself and passionately pray, then maybe you're too proud to be heard in that situation. Because God's Word says in James that we are to grieve, mourn, and wail, to change our laughter into mourning, and our joy to gloom, and to humble ourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Humble ourselves, and then He will lift ourselves up. Often we want to lift ourselves up, and we don't want to do any of the humbling. Our job is to humble. His job is to elevate. 1 Peter 5 says this, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that He might lift you up in due time. When He thinks it's best. When it's just the right time. And so the Bible says, cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. You can be anxious or you can be prayerful. You can be humble and go your own way. or You can be humble or you can go your own way. Those are sort of your options when you have a problem. Now, as we're looking at this passage and we're thinking about prayer, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Prayer is more than just emotion. It's also devotion in our passage. Jesus says when His chosen ones cry out to Him day and night. Day and night. Day and night. If we are honest, who among us spent even one solid unbroken hour in heartfelt prayer to their great and gracious God this week? Just one hour out of all the hours we had all week. Research indicates that most of us have spent no more than five minutes in any one block of time this week in prayer. And so perhaps it's God's lack of response to our prayers has more to do with our lack of emotion and devotion than it does on our Lord's ability or desire. Do you wrestle with God until you get an answer? We all remember Jacob in Genesis wrestling with God until he got an answer. And he wasn't a very good guy. His name meant deceiver. And yet through that wrestling, he became the Israel of God. Through God's grace and wrestling with God, God changed the deceiver into the Israel of God. But there's other stories in the Bible that we easily overlook. There was a, a widow in Zarephath. She was a pagan. She was a foreigner. She wasn't a Jew. And she housed the prophet Elijah for a season. She was going to make a final meal for her boy and then die. And yet God provided oil and God provided flour and they didn't die. And then at a certain point, surprisingly, the little boy died. And the woman went to Elijah, the pagan woman, and said, would you ask your God to raise my son from the dead? Now let's just review. In the history of humanity up to 1 Kings 17, how many people had ever risen from the dead? Nobody. Jesus hadn't risen from the dead yet. What this woman asked for was utterly unprecedented and seemingly impossible. And that was her ask. And so the man of God, the prayer warrior, the prophet, what did he do? He didn't say, well, ma'am, that's unprecedented and impossible. 
He said, all right, let's start praying. And he went, the Bible says, and he prayed over the boy. And do you know what happened? Nothing. He stayed dead. So then what did he do? You read the story. The Bible says he stretches himself out over the boy and he prays again. This is a corpse. This is a dead child. This is getting intimately involved in a situation that we would rather get away from. And do you know what happened? Nothing. So he prayed again. The prophet Elijah did not give up in our story. Instead, Elijah stretched himself out and he prayed a third time. Fervently, passionately, repeatedly, devotedly, and the boy rose from the dead. Unprecedented, seemingly impossible. There's probably something in that story, isn't there? Maybe it's that victory in prayer in some situations does not come cheap. And that's why Jesus tells us a parable that we should always pray and not give up. Now, I also need to tell you that God is sovereign. That means God can't be manipulated. Uh, It is always God's will that we pray without ceasing, but the answer to our prayers will always be according to His divine discretion. Almighty God bangs the gavel and pronounces the verdict in our lives. We cannot cajole God to do our bidding. That would make us God and Him our servant. Which is why the Bible says if you pray according to His will, it shall be given to you. So, so knowing His Word gives us some help in His will, but there's areas we don't know His will, so we ought to ask and see what He says. And we ought to ask until He says something. And not just give up because it didn't happen fast enough. But I want to say that there are also some saints who take and abuse some of these truths. There are some folks out there who say that since God loves us, and He does, He loved us so much He sent His Son to die for us. They say, well, therefore, it must be God's will for you to have all that you want, whenever you want, and as much as you want. That if you pray right, God will make you perpetually healthy, wealthy, and happy. And I want to just tell you that's not true. God invites us to pray. God promises to meet our needs. God promises to give us joy in the midst of trials. But Almighty God is not a genie in the bottle. And prayer is not about learning how to rub the lamp right to get your three wishes from Jesus. Sometimes God will sovereignly permit trials in our lives. Because through trials, we develop perseverance and godly character. Let me show you what I mean. There was a guy named the Apostle Paul. He had a rich prayer life, right? He was an amazing man of God. And and he wrestled with God for an answer to a particular ailment that was harming him. Paul pleaded, please take away this thorn in my flesh. And three times he asked God to remove it. And ultimately, God did not give him relief, but rather said, I'll give you the grace to endure. He said, my answer is this, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to allow you to have a weakness and I'm not going to take it away so that you don't get a swelled head in all the things that you're doing for me. You're also going to have this thing that you have to lean on me. Think about the Lord Jesus. There was never a better example in all the Bible of anything than the Lord Jesus. And So what was Jesus like in prayer? Well, Jesus wrestled in prayer. There is no greater example of passionate, persistent prayer than is found in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Bible tells us on the night Jesus was arrested, Jesus prayed if there was any way for this cup to pass that it please would pass by Him and He wouldn't have to do this. And then He woke up His disciples and told them they needed to pray for themselves. And then he went back to praying if there's any way for this cup to pass. And then he said this. He said, but you know what? Not my will, 
Thy will. That is, I'd like this to go away, and I'm going to pray that it goes away, but if it's not your will for it to go away, then your will be done, Lord. And then he woke his sleeping disciples, and he went back and he prayed a third time, the Scripture says. He prayed all night long for the cup to pass. But it was not God's will for the cup to pass, was it? It was the perfect plan of a perfect God for perfect Jesus to brutally suffer, to be mocked, to be jeered, to be cruelly crucified at Calvary so that you and I could have entrance to eternity. It was a beautiful plan that had a painful part. And Jesus was true to His teaching, wasn't He? Going to the very cross, what was Jesus doing the night before? It wasn't sleeping before a big trial and battle and beating. He was praying. And He prayed not only devotedly, He prayed all night long, friends, but He also prayed emotively like we see in our story. So emotively that a very rare medical condition occurred a condition called hematidrosis. Hematidrosis, you can Google it, is when a person is under such enormous stress that the tiny capillaries near the sweat glands burst and they sweat a mixture of, of blood and sweat. And the Bible says in Jesus' sweat is great drops of blood. You see, Jesus prayed devotedly all night long. He prayed emotively till He sweat blood. And then God gave Him His answer. And in that case, the answer was go to the cross. Because that's the best in this situation. Now here's the deal, friend. If you pray to God night and day, God is not going to ignore your cries. He's going to answer you as well. In Exodus 2.23, the Bible tells us that God heard the Israelite slaves' cries in Egypt. Now remember, they prayed for generations, seemingly without effect. For 400 years they prayed, but eventually God raised up Moses and released an entire nation from the grip of the world's greatest superpower. They didn't have to file a single shot. They plundered the Egyptians... God did miracle after miracle to release them to teach a theological lesson to all of mankind forever. I mean, God did some astounding things. We say that and we go, well, yeah, God answers prayer in the Bible. But does God answer prayer today? Now, at Calvary Church, we should know the answer to that because we've been sticking prayers before Him and He's been answering prayers that stick, right? But I want to just talk a little bit in my world. The man that you see before you here today, on a human level, on a divine level, it's all God's sovereign plan. But on a human level, I am here because of prayer. I am here today because of prayer. You see, humanly speaking, the reason I'm a Christian is there was a widow woman from Mexico, Missouri, named Cora Lena Doyle. And she prayed for 16 years that her grandson, me, who was seldom allowed to see her, seldom allowed Christian influences, shielded, as a matter of fact, from Christian influences, that this boy would come to Christ. And for 16 years she prayed, and at age 16 I became a, a Christian. I became a Christian without a, a witness from my parents. I became a Christian without remembering setting foot in a church other than once when I was a kid, and they served donuts. That was the extent of the theological lesson I learned. I went to a public school to mock the Christians at their Christian meeting. And it was through those meetings that I became a Christian. Because on a human level, there was one widow woman who couldn't do anything else but pray, so she prayed for 16 years. And I became, what most of my friends would say, a very unlikely Christian. And there was another widow woman I want to introduce you to do today. The first woman was my grandmother from Mexico, Missouri, but there was another woman from St. Charles, Missouri. And for 30 years, this woman prayed that God would raise up ministers from Ridgecrest Baptist Church. And she prayed for 30 years. Her name was Jane Williams. And in 30 years, no one went into the ministry. But she kept praying, God, would you send out 
ministers from Ridgecrest Baptist Church. And 30 years of praying came to fruition. After 30 years of praying, God called a member of Ridgecrest Baptist Church into the ministry. He called me. But he wasn't done. Her prayer was for one, and God said, wait, 30 years, I'm going to reward that. There were two. There was a young fellow named Trey Herwick that I went to youth group with as well. And he got called in the ministry. And do you know in the plan of God, most of the churches in St. Charles, Missouri moved to the other side of the tracks, moved to the other towns, moved to where things were looking better. And there was a need for a gospel church to be in St. Charles, Missouri. And do you know who God had plant a church in St. Charles, Missouri? Trey Herwick. The second one, she had faith for one. God brought two. And the second one, she brought right to where she was. She's with Jesus now. But there's still a gospel preaching church in St. Charles, Missouri. Because of prayer, I stand before you as a preacher of the Word of God. If you think I'm any good at it, and that's debatable, if you've had any good from it, and that's debatable, I'm going to tell you that the reason I'm able to preach is because of prayer on a human level. You see, when I went to Moody Bible Institute, God called me to be a preacher. Not a missionary, not a pastor, but to be a preacher. So I went to Moody, and I, I went to these little unventilated prayer closets in Culverson Hall. These were these little wooden closets, and nobody used them anymore. They were the prayer closets in the men's dorm. And in the summer, they turned a lot of the heat off, or the, the, the air conditioning off, and I was working uh, through the summers to put myself through school. And I would go to these closets, and it was totally silent, it was super hot, and it was really unimpressive. And I went in there, and I prayed. And I prayed that God would show me the Bible, that I would understand the Word of God. Because I went to Moody and I, I didn't know how to understand the Word of God. I don't think I'd even read through the whole Bible. And, and I asked that God would help me to be able to understand it and to share it to make an impact in my generation for Jesus. And, and if there is any power in my sermons, it comes from Jesus. The first sermon I preached at Fairmont Baptist Church, I preached staring at the left wall because you people were scary. I pray for you when I preach. I pray for you when I prepare. This morning as I sat in the pew, I looked around and I prayed for many of you by name. I go to other churches and I pray for people there that I know that are there. I pray for the lost. I pray for the saved. I pray as I construct it. I pray. If there is any power in my sermons, it is not in Sean Doyle. It is in God answering prayer. Charlie, you were preaching. And you reached a point where you were ready to stop preaching because nothing was happening. These, these folks in these... Uh, rescue missions were hard-hearted. They weren't listening. They weren't even looking up. They were falling asleep. And you came and you said, you know, what, what am I doing here? And I said, well, who you got praying? And so he started asking Calvary Church to pray. And every week he would go to a place and he would say, I'm going to be at this place this day and this day, this place this day. And I think over 60 people came to Christ. Something like that. You'll have to get the specifics from Charlie. I could be having pastoral license. But a bunch of people got saved and he started getting really excited. That part of it is definitely factually accurate. And do you know what changed? The people of God started praying fervently, specifically, emotively, devotedly, and people started getting saved. Some of the least likely people, some of the most jaded people, started getting saved. <laughs> Here's the reality. Jesus says we often have not because we... He doesn't say you, didn't, you don't have not because you haven't organized enough. You don't have a consultant come in and run the program right and... You don't have because you don't ask the living God. Or when we ask, we don't really believe that God is able and that God is good and that God is willing to do what we ask. Jesus says, you know what? Even if you have a problem as big as a mountain, take it to me. Ask in faith and He can move mountains into the sea. God has been slowly moving us to the mission field and a year ago when this all started, there were about a thousand mountains. There's still about three I'd like you to knock out in prayer. But... That's like 997 less than there were when we started this deal. 
We're fourth and inches from Zimbabwe because you've been praying. Do you have a, a friend who you think would never become a Christian? That was me. Somebody prayed for 16 years. I'm going to encourage you, don't give up on that friend. If God has put that person on your heart, you keep praying. You keep praying. You keep praying. You ask in faith. You ask persistently. You ask with boldness and you don't give up. One widow prayed and I'm here today. Do you have a besetting sin? Do you have a thing that always does you in? That no matter how hard you try to shake it, it comes back at you. I want to encourage you to pray that the Lord would not lead you into temptation. Not that you would beat it, but that He would help you to not be led into temptation. That He would give you the grace to overcome it. God is not asking you to do these things on your own strength. He's inviting you to ask Him for His infinite strength to be used in you. You can be an overcomer because Jesus overcame. You will be overcome if you try hard for Jesus tomorrow. Prayer is like a, a, a thick rope that reaches up to heaven, and heaven's pretty far up there. And eventually I can't see any farther, I just see the clouds. There's this rope here, and, and people come over to this rope, and they see the rope, they see the prayer rope, they don't see the God in heaven, they don't know if there's a bell that when you pull the rope something happens. They look at this rope and they go, you know, there's nobody up there, there's no bell that's going to sound, this is stupid, and they walk away from the rope. And there's other people that walk over and they're curious and they kind of push the rope and the rope moves a little. And there's a few others that go, well, you know, the Bible tells us something about this, this praying thing and we pray a little bit and nothing seems to happen. But there are some other saints. Have you met these saints? Who believe when Jesus says, because you ask not, you have not. And so they go to this prayer rope and they go and they pull with all their worth. And they pull on their lunch break. And they pull on their drive to the car when they're driving to work each day. And they pull whenever they have a spare moment. And they try to get some other people and they ask you, would you come over to this room and would you pull? And they start pulling and pulling and pulling and they're exhausted and they're sweaty. And i got a question for you. Who do you think makes the bell go in heaven? Look at Luke 18. Jesus told us a parable. He used an unjust judge, but who do you think in his story makes the bell go off in heaven? We want to see real results in our prayer times. It's probably time for us to get real prayer times. We need to learn to develop calluses as thick on our metaphorical knees in prayer as the calluses on our finger moving Netflix back and forth between shows. Here's an important question theologically. Why is prayer the way that God chooses to unleash His power among His people. Because undeniably, that's the way He chooses to work. And I think the answer is because in prayer, uniquely, God gets all the glory. All of it. Uh, if we preach, we can try and steal some of the glory. Well, He's a great preacher. If we witness, uh, we may try and steal some of the glory. Well, He's a great witness. Uh, if, if we give money, we may take some of the glory. Well, He is so generous. She is so generous. But if we pray... All we've done is acknowledge the battle is the Lord's. The provision is the Lord's. That salvation is the Lord's. We, in prayer, admit our total dependence on Jesus. That if you don't show up, it's not going to go up. And that's why I think prayer is so pivotal to the Christian because true prayer is simply faith in action. And remember, there's only one thing that amazes God. There's only one thing that pleases God that you and I can do. Years ago... I went to a church, uh, Jim Johnson's church. He'll be coming and preaching to you some. 
And uh, they had, you know, this beloved donut trough. It's like a rule in Baptist churches uh, before COVID. And you would go to the basement because food was only allowed in the basement. Like, that's how church worked then, too. And you would go to the basement, and there was your donut trough. And he stuck this sign that stuck with me for 20-some years. It's from Jim Cimbala's book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. If you've never read it, we have it in our church library. I recommend you read it and think about it. The little note said this, eating my donut, what does it say about our churches today that God birthed the church in a prayer meeting? Look at Acts. And prayer meetings today are almost extinct in our churches. Friends, I want you to notice that Jesus' question, Jesus' question, in our passage is not, is, is not, does God still answer prayer? Jesus says, of course, He'll see that His chosen ones get justice and quickly. Jesus' question is, when the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on the earth? Will He find faith at Calvary Evangelical Free Church when He comes back? Will He still find us on our knees, totally dependent on a totally sufficient God? Or will He find us going through the motions of church? One of those won't be effective and productive in our witness, will it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, it's hard to preach the last sermon as pastor here at Calvary Church. There's a lot of emotions that run through today. But I pray, O oh God, that You would leave an indelible imprint in the hearts and minds of those listening in, live or online. Even those that might be listening online later. Lord, I believe when You said You want Your church to be a house of prayer. I believe we have not because we ask not. I believe that we should pray without ceasing. I be, uh, ceasing. I believe that we should always pray and not give up. I believe that we shouldn't reserve prayer for Sundays and emergencies. I believe that prayer should be our first line of action. When there's a technical problem in the soundboard, it isn't let's run all of our lines, it's let's pray and then let's check stuff. We get it exactly backwards. If we're going to win people to Christ and we look at Colossians 4 and witnessing the Word's way, most of the verses are about preparing by prayer, being devoted and watchful, praying that God would open a door, praying that we would proclaim it clearly. And only then does it talk about uh, being wise in the way we act towards outsiders and sharing the Gospel full of grace and seasoned with salt. It's, it's prayer, 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 prayer. And Lord, that's because You're God and we're not. And you're willing to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or imagine, but you ask us to ask. You are a good Father and you give good gifts. Help us to come not in fear, but in faith. Help us to come with a reverent dependence. Please, Lord Jesus, would you help us to become righteously addicted to prayer that the world would see that there is the living God and Jesus Christ is His name. We pray this in His name. Amen.